Good uh, morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome again to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Ruth Wishart, and it's my great privilege to be chairing one of uh, your favourite authors and my favourite authors. Um, we, we come direct from a moment of high panic. Um, Andrea is clutching to her bosom something known as her monk house. This is because, like Mr Monkhouse, everything she's ever said in public is written there and we momentarily misplaced it. <laughs> Happily for the next hour, it's been reunited with its author. Now, as I guess most of you will know, uh, last year Andrea went shopping for a new mantelpiece uh, to display the myriad literary awards for her fourth novel, Small Island. To win the Orange Prize, the Whitbed novel and, and Best Book and the Commonwealth Prize was a, a clean sweep which pays tribute to the skill of a novel which has also won, won warm applause from critics worldwide. I think it's especially a timely book for a nation which is struggling now to cope with its multiple identities and, its, uh, and, to, fi and to define what it means for us all to be living in a multicultural society. So what we're going to do this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is Andrea's going to read us some short extracts from all four of her novels and then, we'll, then she's all yours to um, find out. She won't tell you what the next one's about because I've tried, <laughs> but uh, she might tell you a little bit more about what informed her writing thus far. Andrea Levy. Well, uh, first of all, I'd just like to say thank you so much for filling out this theatre for me. I'm absolutely gobsmacked. Um, it's, it's so nice to see so many of you here, so thank you for doing that. Um, today I'm actually going to just uh, take you through a quick trip uh, through uh, my career as a writer, if you like. Uh, it, it, basically, uh, this whole writing malarkey that I started on has been a journey of discovery for me um, about my own past, my own family, and, uh, and so all my books um, have been something to do with that uh, journey and that discovery, and they're about uh, looking at what it is to be black and British, and they're about uh, trying to make the invisible visible, uh, trying to sort of put people back into to history who kind of got left out, people like my dad. Um, and, and so I just want to sort of go through and uh, show you how it all began and um, come through to the end, if that's okay. So I'd just like to start by saying that my parents came to Britain in 1948 uh, from Jamaica. And um, I was, we were quite a poor family, and I was brought up on a council estate in Highbury, which is in London, North London, next to the Arsenal Football Stadium. Um, and I'm a, a working class girl. Uh, I was a working class girl. Uh, that is that I grew up watching the television um, that's a terrible thing to say. Not every working class person just grows up watching the television, but I have to say, it's important for me to say that from the get-go, because I hadn't read a book until I was about, a work of fiction until I was about 23. Uh, and so I would just like to explain myself. Uh, <clears throat> what, happened, what happened basically was that... Um, when I was at school, I, di I actually did A-level English, um, and obviously you are meant to read books. Um, if anyone would like to ask me later, I will tell you how you can get through your A-level English <laughs> without reading Dickens, George Eliot, Jane Austen. I didn't actually read them. I bought those little notes. And... Um, um, but the thing about those books for me that was that when I was at school, we were, we were 
we were taught 19th century literature, of which I now appreciate, but at the time, straight over my head, had no idea what they were talking about. In fact, I believed fiction was a form of torture. Um, so I, I didn't really go to a book for any form of pleasure. And then at about uh, the age of 23, a friend bought me The Women's Room by Marilyn French. Big, thick book, and I thought, I could stop a door open with it. Who knows? What else should I do with it? Um, but I read it. And it was a revelation to me that a fiction, that a, a work of fiction could actually mean something to a life, that could actually sort of connect in that sort of way and that could actually change the way you see something, change the way you feel about something. I became an avid reader after that. I, I had to make up all that lost time. And I read all sorts of stuff. At that time, there were a lot of sort of feminist books and uh, it, was a, it was a great time for literature. Um, and... Um, I also read a lot of African-American writers because I wanted to, to, to read people who were, had had the sort of experiences that I was having living as a minority in Britain and, uh, and to find out what that felt like to them. And so I read Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, and uh, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker. And after a while, I wanted... I wanted to find out, well, okay, that's fine for America, that their experience is, has similarities, but it's very different as well. And so I wanted to read something about being black and British. And at that time when you went to the shelves there, I'm talking about the sort of uh, early 80s, end of the 70s, um, there was very little on the shelves about being black and British. And if there was, it was all about guns and drugs and crime. And... Um, Having never been a crack dealer myself, I, I couldn't really, you know, relate to a lot of uh, what was going on in there. So I thought, well, I'll try and write it. Um, I don't know why. I mean, it's just that, you know, you kind of, just like sort of going to an evening class. I thought, I'll just, I'll have a go. And I've got a pen. And, you know. So, um, so... I started writing, and, and always when you go to writing classes, the first thing they say is, write what you know. So I thought, well, okay, I'll write about my family, which is what, what, what I wanted to read about anyway. And so I started with uh, Every Light in the House Burning. Um, and Every Light in the House Burning is, the, is a sort of semi-autobiographical book. It's, uh, it's about a, a girl called Angela Jacobs whose father is dying of cancer. And um, as she's sort of caring for him, um, along with her f uh, family, she sort of thinks back on her childhood in um, a council estate in Highbury. <laughs> so... Um, I'll just start with uh, the first thing I wrote for this book, and one of the first things I, I wrote at all. Um, and this is chapter one in Every Light in the House Burning. My dad once drank six cups of tea and ate six buttered rolls, not in the course of a day, which would be nothing unusual. No, he drank six cups of tea and ate six buttered rolls, one after the other, to avoid them being wasted. It happened in a motorway cafe where we had stopped on our coach journey down to Devon. It was the first holiday I'd ever taken in my life. I was 11. We, we all went, my mum, my dad, my two sisters and my brother. Our destination was a Pontins holiday camp in Brixham. When we stopped at the motorway cafe, we had all wanted various items from the display of food. Fish and chips, please, Dad, I said, hopefully. Cake and cola, please, from my sister. We had never been out with our dad for a meal before, so we had no idea what his response would be. 
My dad sucked his teeth and jangled loose change around in his pocket as he looked at the prices on the menu. Then he ordered six cups of tea and six buttered rolls. We were all disappointed. We sat watching my dad slurp at his tea with relish and shower his suit with crumbs from the roll. It was us and him. One by one with our roll and tea in front of us, we said we didn't feel hungry anymore. My dad looked surprised at first. Eat up, he encouraged with a mouthful of bread, but then resigned himself as he made us all pass the items down to him. My mum was the last. She looked embarrassed, sitting at a table with a man who had five cups of tea and five plates of rolls around him, which he was systematically devouring. She said she had to go to the toilet and left to get back on the coach. The humiliation did not stop there. Because my dad finished every last item, he was late getting back on the coach. The driver paced up to us to ask where he was. One of the other passengers said he was still eating in the cafe. <laughs> we all waited with people tutting and staring at us. Then my dad emerged from the toilets at the side of the cafe. He was running. He smiled at everyone as he walked to his seat, but nobody smiled back. He sat down and we were off. Now that book, um, I found that book difficult to find a publisher who would, who would actually publish it. It took us a long time, maybe two years to find a publisher. What happened was that publishers saw it as, uh, because it was about a black family, somehow black people couldn't represent a universality. Uh, if it's a black family, it's not a book just about family, it's a book about a black family and therefore it's different. Um, and it, it took um, a headline, my publisher, sort of to take it on and sort of say, no, well, maybe, maybe people will relate to this because other publishers just thought, well, only black people want to read it, there aren't enough in this country. They did a calculation, it, how many people are going to buy it, came down to the number three and they decided, <laughs> no. But uh, headline took it on, bless them, and uh, it came out and lo and behold, uh, black people could represent a universality as well. So the second book that I wrote was called Never Far From Nowhere, and that's about two sisters with Jamaican parents. You will definitely see a theme emerging here. Um, and they're growing up in a council estate in Finsbury Park, which is terribly near Highbury. Um, this is set in the 70s. Uh, it's told in two first-person narratives. It's about two sisters, Vivian and Olive. And both of them sort of tell their stories of who they are and the lives that they lived growing up on this uh, council estate. And now you may ask, is it autobiographical? And that's a very tricky thing for a writer because I know everything that's in this book, but it's not autobiographical. And that's, that's the wonder of fiction, really. Um, but I'm just going to read you a little bit from Never Far From Nowhere. This is from Vivian. She's at school. Uh, she went to a nice grammar school in Highbury, as I did. Um, and uh, this is her at school. Georgina had to organise an election at school and Carol and me had to become communists. I'm not doing that, Carol protested. I'll be a conservative like my dad. No, Georgina said. It's only pretend. I've got no one else who'll do it. She had trouble getting anyone interested in taking part at all, but Fatbag Baker, our headmistress, insisted a mock election would be good for our education. 
Georgina was very keen on politics, but no one else seemed to be, except Gillian Roberts, who didn't really count because she was fat and believed that there should be no parliaments or leaders and that people should govern themselves in small communities. She wanted to stand as an anarchist, but Georgina said nobody would take her seriously. Gillian stormed out of the sixth-form room, six room when Georgina suggested she could stand as a monster-raving loony instead. <laughs> Georgina and Helena were Labour and wanted nationalised industries and workers' rights. Lindsay and Catherine were Conservative and wanted better law and order and everyone to go to private schools. Gretchen Wilde was Liberal and wanted everything as far as I could see. And Carol and me, we were, well, red. I made Carol come to the library with me and I read books on Karl Marx and Lenin. I read out loud to her about dialectical materialism, and she looked at me and said, I know, I know all that stuff. <laughs> Carol didn't want to do it. It's stupid, she said. It's important to know what's going on in the world, I told her. It's not the world, Vivian, it's only this crap little school. We had to walk round the school campaigning, wearing badges with our political parties on so the lower school could approach us and ask questions. A second year came up to Carol. Why should I vote for you, she said, all cocky with her hands on her hips. Carol looked down at her and said, because if you don't, I'll have you killed. <laughs> the second year ran off and Carol laughed. We campaigned separately after that, <laughs> although Carol just sat in the classroom and if anyone asked her about communism, she said she'd just defected and that they should ask me. <laughs> Labour won. After, after I'd written uh, Never Far From Nowhere, I went to Jamaica, the land that my, my parents had left many, many years before. I'd never been to Jamaica. We'd never had the money to go back or anything. And uh, so I, I, I managed to, to go to Jamaica. And uh, while I was there, I found out that I had a family. Now, I know this may sound very odd, a family and a past. But when you're sort of immigrants in a country there was just us this little nuclear family living on this estate and I didn't have aunts and uncles I never knew a grandparent I never knew cousins or anything like that and so I kind of felt that my family history began when my dad stepped off uh, the ship into this country in 1948 um, and so going to Jamaica I suddenly saw that this this was the place where I heralded from and it was um, it was an amazing epic for me. It was an amazing feeling for me to, to, to know that, to feel a, a connection with somewhere. And so the experiences of that I put into um, Fruit of the Lemon, uh, which was my next book. And in this book, uh, Faith Jackson, who's the narrator, starts life in 1980s London and she's going about and everything's dandy. Um, and then she has a crisis, uh, which I won't say what it is. And um, it leads her parents to say to her, why don't you go to Jamaica? I think it would be good for you to know about where, uh, where you came from and where your family came from. And so she does this and she meets an aunt and um, other cousins and, and, and lots of family who all tell her uh, the story of her family's life going back into the 19th century. So I'm... I'm just going to read a tiny bit from Fruit of the Lemon. Uh, at this point... Uh, there is a, a friend of her family called Violet 
who is telling uh, Faith about her father's family, uh, her grandfather and her father. And so this is just the beginning of Violet's, Violet's story. So it's Wade's story told to me by Violet. Your daddy was the son of people who are friends with my daddy. No, wait. Now I think, I think your daddy's daddy was the cousin of my mommy's cousin. <laughs> no, no. Your daddy's daddy was the son of my daddy's cousin's uncle. <laughs> or was it his aunt? No, I think it was his uncle. But no, wait, wait. Evidently, my dad's parents were showy people. All show. Always show enough. They had no more than anyone else, but they liked to show off and carry on like they're some high-class people, and it all show. My grandfather was Obadiah Jackson. His father was a white man, or so they say. No one ever saw him. They had a picture, but anyone can have a picture. <laughs> he was a doctor who worked in Mandeville. I think they see him named Cecil. No, wait. Cedric. No. Seymour. I don't know. They say him Dr. Jackson. Oh, sure. <laughs> he married a West Indian woman, a black woman called Mary. Marry? Him never marry her. Cha. Mary had a lot of children by Dr. Jackson and plenty other men, so I hear. The doctor, however, had another family in England that is how it was. They have picnic everywhere. They just don't care. All the little half-breed children running round and them run off back to England to some big house with a white woman who know nothing. Think her husband sitting in Jamaica pining on her and him chasing the first black batty him see. Doctor or no doctor, men cannot hold their urges, and that is black man or white. Thank you. Um, after, uh, whilst I was writing Fruit of the Lemon, I was asked to judge the Orange Prize for Fiction in 1997. Um, and to... to, to, to to judge the prize, I had to read 60 books in three months, back to back. Um, and although that sounds a very daunting experience for a writer, I learned so much during that process. I, having to read books that I wouldn't normally read um, and uh, finding the most fantastic books or the really not very good books and having to read them anyway. Um, it really taught me something about storytelling and it made me really want to understand about this craft of storytelling. Um, because by this time, uh, I was not only an avid reader, but I loved writing. And I believed the novel was just the, the greatest form of art that there was. Um, also, all the research that I'd had to do for Fruit of the Lemon, very... Uh, you know, some research, not a great deal, um, had whetted my appetite for actually um, learning about other, other people and other situations and then placing yourself in, in their heads and using your imagination to actually create new worlds. Um, and at that time as well, I really wanted to go back and have a look at my parents' immigration into Britain. I just thought that was 
that time has sort of gone down in history when the ship, the Empire Windrush, um, came from the Caribbean to uh, Britain in 1948. That, that uh, with 480 or whatever black men on it, um, that period has gone down in history as the point where Britain began to become multicultural, whether rightly or wrongly you think that those poor 500 men actually did that. But um, my dad was actually on that ship, and so I, 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 I wanted to sort of go back and um, just have a look at what that experience was like. But I also wanted to look at it from the point of view, not only of the people that came to this country, but the point of view of the people who were living here, who, who had to make adjustments in their lives and, and, and the way they see this country or the way they see themselves in order to accommodate these, uh, you know, quite look, different looking people living amongst them. Um, and so I wanted to see it from both sides. Um, and so Small Island was born. I um, I, uh, it's the story of two couples, um, one black from Jamaica, Hortense and Gilbert, and one white from England, Queenie and Bernard. And they find themselves in a house in 1948 in Earl's Court together. Um, and the book is about what happened to them in 1948. And it's also about what happened to all of them uh, to bring them to that place, what had, what had just happened to them. And as I was writing, I realized, well, the Second World War had just happened. And I didn't realize my parents had come to, the, to, to Britain quite so soon after that e enormous schism and upheaval in the 20th century. Um, and so that's what uh, the books are about. The other thing that I liked about it was that I was going to have to research it because all my other books had been so sort of autobiographical and people had said, oh, yeah, but it's just autobiographical, you know, and, and, and uh, there was somehow something slightly lesser about that. And so I was going to have to research it and really uh, do my work on it. And um, I have actually had people ask me if indeed Hortense is me, uh, whether I lived through the Second World War and... <laughs> What, what can you say? But anyway, um, no, uh, I, I didn't. So anyway, I want to read a, a short bit. Um, it's from Gilbert. And Gilbert's one of the 6,000 West Indian men who volunteered for the RAF and came to Britain to, uh, to, uh, to do his stuff. Um, and um, he goes back to Jamaica very briefly after the war and then he comes back again on the Empire Windrush to start a new life and he's no longer in his uniform. This is the bit where he's just stepped off the boat after coming back um, for the second time to Britain. Gilbert. You see, most of the boys were looking upwards. Their feet might have been stepping on London soil for the first time, their shaking sea legs wobbling them on the steadfast land, but it was wonder that lifted their eyes. They finally arrive in London town, and let me tell you, the mother country, this thought I knew your place was bewildering these Jamaican boys. See them pointing at the train that rumbles across a bridge? They look shocked when billowing black smoke puffed its way round the whitewashing hung on drying lines, the sheets, the pants, the baby's bonnets. Come, they had never seen houses so tall, all the same. And what is that? A chimney? They have fire in their house in England? No. And why everything looks so dowdy? Even the sunshine can find no colour but grey. Staring on people who are staring on them. Man... 
The women look so glum. Traffic turning their head this way and that. Steady there, boy, watch out. Look, you see a white man driving a bus, and over there, can you believe what your eye is telling? A white man sweeping the road. But this old RAF volunteer had seen it all before during the war, so I was looking down, unlike them big-eyed newcomer boys. I just arrived back in England, and there on the pavement before me, I spy a brooch. What a piece of good fortune. What a little bit of luck. Lying last this precious oval jewel shimmered the radiant, iridescent green of a hummingbird caught by the sun. My auntie Corinne would have raised her hands to the heavens to call it a sign. No, these were the thoughts that passed through my head in the three steps it took me to reach that brooch. One, perhaps it fall from a young woman's coat. Cha, so my blessing is another misfortune. Two, it was an old woman that lose it from her purse. Maybe the police station was a proper place to take it. And three, her tents. This deep green brooch would look so pretty on her. I conjured an image in my mind. See me take the sparkling brooch to pin it to her dress, near her neck, against her smooth, not brown skin. And look, see her touch the pin, then tilt her head to charm a smile on me. So, all this rumination is taking place as I move closer. I was about to bend my knee so I could reach the brooch. When hear this, it flew away. Black flecks suddenly pit in the air. That jewel was no more than a cluster of flies caught by the light. The radiant iridescent green, the movement of their squabbling backs. My eyes no longer believe what they saw. For after the host of flies flew, they left me with just a small piece of brown dog shit they had all gathered on. Was this a sign? <laughs> Maybe. For one of the big-eyed newcomer boys walked straight along and stepped right in the mug. Um, I just want to say that it's, um, it's been enormously gratifying to me that Small Island has reached such a wide audience and um, a wide appreciative audience. And I'm so pleased that that story has, has meant something to other people um, and not only to me. Um, but with all my books, as I said at the beginning, I wanted to put the sort of marginal or minority voice really where it should be, uh, which is, I believe, uh, as part of the mainstream of British history. Um, and there's a, still a lot I've got to do. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, because, uh, because Andrea chose not to take up her life of crime, she's got no pockets in her dress, so we're just a small pause till we get to get the radio mic wired on. This is Jem's favourite part of the day.
We're not quite live yet, at least no. you're not quite live yet. I said at the beginning, uh, Andrea, that it, you know, Small Island, apart from being a terrific read, arrived at a very important moment in British history, and perhaps it's even more important a book this year than it was last year with the debate about multicultural Britain and whether, in fact, that's a destination that's either possible or appropriate. Yes. Well, I mean, I, th I think... I personally think it's always been an, an important debate and it's always been there. I think people are now uh, trying to engage with it. What are we going to be? Are we going to become a, a, a multicultural society where people sort of all live different, you know, different lives? Are we going to have one sort of identity, which is the British identity, which, and, and that has a certain amount of traits? And all these things are sort of being discussed now and I think they need to be discussed. I think, uh, and I think, it's, um, I think it's good that they are being discussed. They're being discussed though, in some slightly strange ways. I mean, the, uh, one of the Home Office ministers has been suggesting that we all now become hyphenated. So I'm a, a Scottish Brit or a British Scot. And, oh, know, really? Yes. And well, they're all hyphenated in America. They're sort of. So I would become a uh, black British Jamaican British. I, well, it could get confusing. You could run out of <laughs> your passport. Yeah. I like to just say I'm English, but uh, you know, that's all. <laughs> you're probably safer saying you're Jamaican in this audience. Yeah? <laughs> Probably, <laughs> yeah. I'm also intrigued by that journey you made back to Jamaica because you said you know, that you didn't have any access to an extended family, just a very small nuclear family is the way you put it. But presumably within that nuclear family, they talked about where they came from and about the family they'd left. No. <laughs> Funnily enough, no, never talked about it. I mean, my parents really didn't talk about it. Um, we didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a lot of time to give them, you know, you know they were very busy people. I mean, in the, they had to work. We had four kids. We lived in a tiny place. It was, you know, it was a difficult life that they led. But they, I think my parents had sort of um, wanted to move forward whenever we tried to bring it up, which was not that often either, because we we're all terribly, I was terribly embarrassed about it, you know, that I had a dad who sort of said, come in the man, just sit down, you know, was, <laughs> it was embarrassing, at this, you know, for, for where I lived at that time. Now everybody talks like that. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> As my dad did that, but um, you know, so so we, I wasn't curious, and they weren't forthcoming. So between that incredible lack of curiosity on both sides, it, nothing, you know, nothing was really spoken about. I had to. Um, it was fairly recently that I had to really try and drag something out of my mother, and then it was like pulling teeth. And and when you went back to Jamaica and you you met the family about whom you hadn't spoken in the domestic environment. I mean, how much of a culture shock was that for a, uh, an English woman growing up through the English education system, etc., and, and whose father didn't see anything about his origins? Yeah, well, it, it was quite a shock. I mean, it was um, it, actually not, not quite as a shock as I thought. I mean, like, I don't know how people view somewhere like Jamaica here, but I, I thought it was going to be a lot... Uh, a lot more primitive <laughs> you know mud huts didn't come into my mind <laughs> not quite but I was certainly surprised that my aunt had a flushing toilet uh, you know and, and that's ridiculous you know but uh, and that's sort of the extent to which you know I really didn't know anything about about this country and, and when I first got there they um, my aunt I I was wearing trousers, which at the time that I went, uh, you really don't do. And there is one point at which I, wear, I wanted to wear some trousers to church because uh, my aunt's very religious and she nearly fainted that, that, you know, something like that would happen. And so once I put a dress on, she looked at me and says, oh, now you look like a Jamaican, you know. <laughs> but, um, but I felt 
the most English British I'd ever felt as soon as I stepped into Jamaica. And I recently went there in May and the same thing happened. I just felt so sort of precise and, uh, what time will you be coming? And, uh, you know, you don't say that, do you? Oh, soon come, you know. And, and very sort of, uh, you know, it, it's just a completely different experience. So. so the corollary of that would be that you obviously might conclude that identity is more about where you grew up rather than where you came from? I think identity is an extremely complex issue. I don't think you can say any of those things, you know, and it, it really depends on the sort of individual and how the individual relates to their past or their, you know, or, or their history or their family or anything. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's terribly complex. And uh, for me, as I say, I, I, I consider myself a sort of black Britain, uh, an English person who has Jamaican um, heritage, um, and that's fine with me, you know. It's, uh, uh, it's interesting too when you're talking about uh, your, uh, your, your career prior to writing. I, mean, I think most people in the audience would be astounded um, by the fact that you hadn't read fiction until you were 23, but also perhaps slightly astounded that you got through A-level English without actually opening a book. Um, <laughs> so is this, a, is this an advert for the, the newly discovered enthusiasm for grammar schools? <laughs> I don't know. No, it's a terrible thing to admit. But I mean, uh, there are some times when people, you know, are uh, worried about uh, young people reading. And, and, um, and I, too, worry about young people not reading enough. But also, I think that when the time is right, people do come to reading. And the trouble with um, the reading that I did at school, which I think has changed, is that I, with English or something like that, I wasn't, I wasn't taught to love reading, to love books. It, it was more like taking in vitamins, you know, I, I had to sort of, reading was good for me, and you know, I had to read Middlemarch, which in, indeed was good for me when I did read it, but by the time I was doing it, it was just, it, you know, I couldn't do it, um, and, and so there was never that sort of uh, learning the joy of, of, of reading as well, which I think um, has changed in schools now. It was interesting that the book that, that pulled a switch for you was a kind of a very famous feminist novel, um, yes. uh, Marlon French's uh, The Woman's Room, and, and there is obviously a universality about the sentiments expressed in that, in the way that you were worried that there is, wasn't going to be a unit, or your publishers were, wasn't a universal, universality about the black experience, but there is presumably, because it shines through all your books, all kinds of things that are common to all races and all people, because for instance, small islands, as much about class as about race, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, yeah, always. And, uh, that's why, you know, all these issues are terribly complex and uh, we've, we've tried to sort of, or often, people try to bring them down to simple formulas, to simple ways of viewing it, just to make it seem, uh, just so you can digest it. Um, but actually, I'm a great believer in complexity. And, uh, and I think this is one of the most complex issues that we have, and it needs, you know, careful sort of looking and changing. And, and you, one day you'll say one thing, and the next day you'll say another, and they can both be right. And, uh, and there are very few issues <laughs> that you can do that, but I believe in you know. One last question for me before we open it to the audience. Uh, because of the debate that we started off talking about, are you confident in your own self that, that Britain will we'll get through this period of uncertainty and, and, and mutual hostility and suspicion and, and arrive at that um, mutual respect and multicultural destination? Well, if I didn't think that, that would be a sad day. I mean, I have to, I, I'm, I'm an optimist about it. I do think uh, that we have a lot of work to do and that there is, um, 
there, there needs to be an openness and which which um, and and a looking at really looking at the issues which I don't think we've we've done up until now. There's a, a, a lot to look at, um, but I. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, yes, I hope we're going to get to that point, because if I don't say that, then <laughs> it just feels too awful. What would happen to Britain if it didn't? You know, uh, it's, um, it doesn't bear thinking about, so uh, I'm going to be optimistic about it. Okay, let's take some questions from, uh, from the audience. Uh, there's a one there, please, if you could just wait for the microphone. Thank you. Oh, we'll get you next. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you very, very much for Small Island. My husband was one of the volunteers for the RAF, and it's his story. Oh, lovely. Thank you. And could we just pass that into the... in here? Thank you. Um, I, yes, I too would like to say thank you very much for Small Island. It was a great read. But I'm interested to know, did your parents... What did your parents think about the fact that you were opening up their past? Um, were they... Was your father still alive when you when you wrote it? Is he still alive? No, no, no he wasn't. So, so it was your mother's reaction, was it? My mo yes, yes, my mother. I'd like to know what she said. Thank you. Um, my mother would like me to shut up. <laughs> I think that sums it up. <laughs> so she asked me uh, recently, so what are you writing next? And <clears throat> I said, well, I'm writing this book about Jamaica. Oh, no. <laughs> So uh, you know, she she would like me to. Uh, <laughs> but having said that, uh, she also she's te she's terribly proud about Small Island, and uh, she um, I recently I I not to blow my trumpet, but I, I I met the Queen recently. Um, we sat down and had a chat. Now not many people get to do that in life, and I told my mum about it, and she just spontaneously burst into tears that any child of hers would ever get to sort of meet a monarch. So I have gone up in her estimation. <laughs> I mean, so so far to the point where she now says, "Why don't you write a book about Jamaicans who are growing old?" So, <laughs> you know, so there's hope. Kind of dispiriting that you write four novels and your mother's so so, but when you meet the Queen, hey! <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the, in the red there. Again, thank you, like everyone else. But tell me, when you went over to Jamaica, did you connect with your family? Did you find that you had things in common with your cousins? And you said about the trousers and your aunt. You, I can understand you have to change and adapt, but was there a basic similarity between the families? Oh, that's a nice question. Was there a basic similarity? Um, no. <laughs> I think I think we we are quite different. I mean, obviously, we've got a shared a shared past in grandparents, which uh, I'd never had a conversation with a cousin where we talked about these two people who were both grandparents to us. And so, so we had those sorts of things which I'd never had before. Um, and so they could tell me about my grandparents because they knew them. Um, but, uh, but apart from that, their lives in Jamaica are uh, very different to the, the life that, that I lead. Um, uh, and they're, you know, they're lovely people as well, but um, yeah, we've grown up quite differently and their concerns are, are much more hand to mouth. It's a very difficult place to live. Um, and so, you know, our, our lives are different. Have you done that in reverse? Have any of your cousins come to, to London? Well, my, uh, one of my cousins um, has been here, yes. I mean, they, they come sort of every so often, but, uh, but not a lot. It's um, not from Jamaica. My, my family are all over the place. I have family in Canada, America, uh, Vietnam, uh, New Zealand. So we're, we've got our own little diaspora going on here. 
So um, there, there are not that many left in Jamaica now. Okay, more questions? Yes, up at the, the back there. It just, Mike's coming. I just do this to make the staff run up and down the stairs. <laughs> um, I also... I, I can't hear you, actually. Hold on. It's not on, actually. Looking at... Still can't hear it. I think that um, microphone's coming it. in and no, out. that's all right if you hold Is it. that okay? Yes. Is that yeah. okay? That's yeah. Um, looking at your name, what strikes me is that your surname is a very high-class um, Jewish name. Oh, yes. And I just wondered if the Jewish bit of your identity was something important and which you might write about at some point. Well, funny you should say that, yes. Um, <laughs> the Jewish part uh, is from my father's side. And um, I'll tell, tell my grandfather... Um, was born Jewish, um, and he, um, he went to the First World War, and he became a Christian. Um, and then, rather like Gilbert's father, if anyone remembers in Small Island, I did use my grandfather's story there, um, and he became a Christian, and his family sort of disowned him. Um, and so I don't know anything about the Jewish part, and I am desperately trying to find out. It's not the easiest thing in the world, researching your family in Jamaica. Um, uh, and so far, I have got my grandfather's name and date of birth, and I st can't even find him <laughs> with that. You know, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only just starting on that. But I would love to know about that side. And it's a uh, that not people are often surprised um, about a Jewish name and coming from Jamaica as if this is something odd. But actually, there were Jews in Jamaica from. Um, the, the 17th century um, onwards. And uh, they were possibly the only people who went to Jamaica to settle, uh, who weren't brought there because they were slaves, who didn't go as sort of planters to sort of, uh, um, you know, to work and come back with the rewards. They went there to make a life on Jamaica. Um, and, um, and so it is a very interesting history. Um, and there's a bit being written about it, but I would love to find out about my family there. Yes, there. In the red there, yes. Just hold on. Thank you. Um, you talk about reaching a wider audience and universality. And looking around the audience today, I wondered which particular group you thought you might like to reach. I mean, I suppose we're all aware there aren't many black people here. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, <coughs> this is a group I'd like to reach. <laughs> I'd like to reach anyone. I mean, as a writer, you just sort of want to... You want your stories to connect to anybody. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't particularly surprise me that there aren't uh, any, or uh, not that I can see, but there may be, but uh, people who are black here. But um, it doesn't faze me either. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite happy that um, all of you are interested in the story of, um, of Small Island as, as anyone. Now, there's somebody just in front there, yes. <coughs> I was stunned by the fact that it had taken you two years to get your first book published. How did you keep together? How did you keep confident enough not to stuff it away in a drawer? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, <laughs> what happened was that I sort of sent it out, first of all, on my, you know, in my sort of, I've got an envelope, Way off it goes, and uh, ready for them to come back. And the rejection letters started coming in. And then I actually got an agent after about a year. Um, and... I think if I hadn't 
got an agent, um, I wouldn't be sitting here now because I would have given up because he must have got, I don't know, 30 or so rejection letters. And I don't think I could personally have stood that amount of rejection. There's only so much you can take. Um, but the, ha having said that, the rejections that we were getting were very positive, if there is such a thing. <laughs> you know, they would say things like, this is a lovely book. I do hope someone publishes it. <laughs> so, they're very strange people, publishers. They've got a sort of herd mentality. So unless there has sort of been a major breakthrough, you know, best-selling book about a black family in Highbury before, then, uh, you know, they sort of don't quite know what to do with it. You know, they want sort of... Uh, and that was, that was 10, 12 years ago. It has changed because I think we had a major best-selling book about with, with white teeth and I think that everybody's now sort of desperately scrabbling around looking for the new Zadie Smith, although what is wrong with the old Zadie Smith, I don't know. But, uh, and so it's sort of, um, you know, it's changed a bit. I don't, think, I don't think that somebody would have that problem now. I don't think I would. It's quite interesting. I mean, yourself, Zadie, uh, Monica. I mean, there is when you, you start you started out Trinity, talking of yeah, but you started out talking about the fact that when you went to the shelves, there your life wasn't. Um, yes. Do you feel a bit more sanguine about the about the diversity in publishing now? Yes. Well, I do. I do think that uh, the other thing about publishers is they like to make some money. You know, and uh, and as soon as they sort of see some money to be made somewhere, it sort of works out. And um, uh, and. To be a, a, a black Briton and writing about that experience, and that is the crucial thing, you have to be kind of writing about that experience, then uh, you will, you know, if, if you, your writing's anything half decent, then you, I think you will find a publisher. I don't think it's going to be that hard. I, I may be being over-optimistic. If you, ha however, are a black Briton writing about your quest for the Holy Grail or something like that, that, I don't know. <laughs> Gentlemen in the front here, thank you. Being an Arsenal support, a fervent Arsenal <laughs> supporter, I noticed that you mentioned you come from Highbury Stroke, Finsbury Park. Do you make any mention of them, of them in your books? I do, actually. You see, I, the Arsenal football ground was an incredible was a wonderful playground for me when I was young, because we used to. I literally lived you know, a couple of hundred yards from the entrance to the North Bank. And so the Arsenal would come out, the, 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 the uh, fans would come out, and we as kids would run against them like this, which is fantastic for living in London now. It's, you know, taught me how to run against a crowd. And we also had a little protection racket going where people would, they used to be able to park their cars in our street. They used to park three, three abreast, you know, in the street. And we'd go out and say, mind your car, mister. And, and he would say yes if he was sensible. <laughs> I can so. rebuild it. That's, that's that streak of entrepreneurship yes, is, yes. is alive and well in Glasgow. <laughs> I can also tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that the devout Arsenal supporters got red socks on. But <laughs> yes, on the, on the aisle there. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed your account of age, albeit was an older man in Small Island. But I've got a very serious question for you, and that is, where was Horton's autobiographical in the kitchen? In the when you first kitchen. described the young book. You were saying that earlier on that Hortense wasn't autobiographical, which is good news because she's a snippy snobby. <laughs> 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 
but this uh, this readers wanted to know if, if there was any bits of it autobiographical, like the way she handled herself in the kitchen. Oh, I see that she's such a bad cook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. No, no, no. <laughs> no, my husband will tell you what a fantastic cook I am, but uh, or else. My mother, however, did have a little struggle with cooking when she first came to this country because she was having to use new ingredients, and uh, so she, she she had a little bit of a struggle. So there's a little bit of little bit of that in Hortense. Yes, in the in the black there. Yes, I think he's going to come around the long way. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I used to work at Highbury Quadrant Primary School. Oh, right. Um, I've retired a few years ago. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> but when, I was, when we were trying to find books, multicultural books, it was very, very difficult. And uh, considering that about three quarters of the children in, in our school were of multicultural backgrounds... Um, I wondered if you ever considered writing for children, children's books, because you would go down a treat, and particularly <laughs> if you could visit the schools, because um, I'm sure you would be very, very popular. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, I haven't. I haven't ever thought of writing children's books. Um, when I first started writing, I did think of writing for teenagers. I don't know why. I, I, I suppose I saw the teenage me and wanted to uh, write a book that was, you know, could get them interested sort of thing but um, I, uh, I haven't really thought about that but uh, there's a wonderful Mallory Blackman who's a friend of mine is uh, doing sterling work there's <laughs> sterling work but there's a lot there's a lot more now going on and it, it's, it's very gratifying it's great there was somebody there with the hand up yes in the red yes actually I've just worked out the secret of success of getting a question in here is if you put on a red blouse you're <laughs> <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed um, Small Island and, and your talk this morning, but I was interested in the themes in your book. Both the marriages were uh, marriages of convenience, but actually they were enforced marriages and done by all sorts of desperate desperation made them get married to these people. Um, and then, uh, which I found interesting, and I was curious to know where that theme came from, and also the ending, which I won't spoil for other people, but just sort of... Um, how you came to that conclusion because we had huge debate about it. Oh, really? Oh, yes. good, good. Must yes, I know. People often, well, I'll, t I'll take the ending first because it's the easier. <laughs> um, but uh, the ending was, um, I, I won't say what happened in the end, but there, there are lots of ways that that ending could have gone. Um, and all of them would have been fine and plausible, I think. Uh, but I, I, I kind of wanted an ending that would make people think, well, is that the country we want to live in? Is that how we want to live? You know, is that, you know, rather than it feeling the, the right thing to do or, you know. Um, but the other thing about the marriages, um, yes, I don't know. It was, it was about, I suppose it was through talking to um, some women uh, of around that time and about the sort of uh, what was open to them um, in terms of life that made me sort of see that often... You know, it, it was a, a narrower. It was a narrower world in that sense for some people. Um, if you wanted, if for, for some women, if you wanted to sort of branch out or be different, it was it was much harder thing to do than it is for my generation. Um, and so I just um, wanted it. And and also the other thing 
that the, the, both the relationships being like that, the, both the women having these sort of rather marriages of convenience. And I thought, if only those two had managed to talk to each other, they'd have had something really in common. Um, and that would have been nice, but they, they never managed to get through what was the sort of prejudice of the time, and that was sad. There's a sense, I suppose, in which Hortense was marrying Britain as much as she was marrying Gilbert. That's right, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just a, a ticket to yes, the mother yes, country. Yes, yes, yeah, There was somebody, in fact, there's two up at the back. Let's take the, the, the checked one, checked one first. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for the book. Um, I started a book club in London six weeks ago, and yours was our first book. And it's all chaps, and we loved it. it was oh! Really well, you've made my day. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome to come and join the next one. Which is on the <laughs> my question is simple. It's the title of the book. Does Small Island refer to Jamaica or Britain? Ah, well, it, it refers to both. <laughs> it's, uh, it refers to... Jamaica, which is uh, all Jamaicans disparagingly call all the other Caribbean islands are small islands. Uh, so it, it refers to once you've left Jamaica, you realise there's a huge world out there and in fact you, you are living on a small island. The same with Britain. At that point, Britain's empire was shrinking. Um, and so from a country that trotted across the globe and felt quite happy ruling the world, um, to coming back to being, well, under threat during the Second World War and, uh, and also everything shrinking in, it became a small island as well. And also for the characters, each, each of the four characters, it just felt like they were just living these lives separately uh, as small islands. So it took me a while to come up with it, I must <laughs> say. <laughs> We've got time for one more. And just for ease there, thank you. Um, do you. Do you feel you have enough confidence now as a writer to write what you don't know, for instance, about a white Scottish male or, <laughs> or, or do you see yourself as being dedicated for life to um, writing from a black minority point of view? Um, I don't see myself writing from a black minority point of view in, in, in one way. I see myself writing about people. Um, certainly, I'm... Uh, I certainly, in the next book, I don't say anything usually about my book, but I have to just say I have a white Scottish male in it. Uh, <laughs> so see me after if you want something. Uh, I happen to know that white Scottish male, and I think he was hoping you were going to do some personal research. <laughs> I'm sorry, we, we have run out of time, but can I just say from my point of view how wonderful it is when you find uh, the author as enjoyable as the book. Andrea Levy. Ladies and gentlemen, sorry, could, you, could you just remain seated, please, just for a couple of minutes, so Sandra's, she'll be going to the signing tent, which is left and left again, where she can talk to you some more and sign copies of Small Island and possibly some of her other books as well. Thank you very much.